The Apostle Paul knew it would be tough to get Jews and Gentiles to unite at the Lord's Supper. He knew the power of food fights in the church and the debates over when and when not to worship. In Romans 14, he took on this challenge. As we look at verses 1 through 12, Dave Wurtzen will help us understand the difference between personal religious scruples and the gospel truth, and who is weak and who is strong in the faith. We want to talk today about food fights and Jesus, or food fights in the church. And just to get you in the field a little bit, when I first started in Midlothian back in 1973, there was a big issue. How many of you remember the days when you all wore this to church? Everyone that remembers when you wore this, raise your hand, a whole bunch of you, okay? When I first came to Midlothian, this is what almost every pastor in Midlothian wore on Sunday morning. They got all dressed up in this, and how many of you were taught that the reason we do this, we put on our coats and ties, because you wouldn't come to see the President of the United States dressed in your jeans. Anybody ever heard that? Okay, so as a pastor teacher, I needed to put on my coat. Only I was from the 60s, and our culture was in a massive change. And it was about authenticity. It was about intimacy. It was about closeness. It was Peter, Paul, and Mary playing the guitar. So I sat on a stool and dressed like this. And that was a really big thing. There were fights in the church over that, over that preference. I start out with that because that's an easy one because most of you don't have much of a hassle over that, okay? But that's one of the things that the church has fought about. What I want you to understand is some of you that are older, that is a preference, In other words, you were taught from the time you were small that you get dressed up to honor God, and the reason that you wore your beautiful clothes and your suits was because you wanted to honor the Lord, and that's really a good thing. When all of you that were older, your desire to honor the Lord, or maybe some of you are younger that are into that kind of a church, that idea is that we need to be reverent to the Lord. But the other side of it, when I came to Midlothian, a lot of unbelievers would tell me I can't come to church because I don't have the right clothes. So that's why we didn't dress up. Because I could say to everyone I met, that's not going to work in our church because you can wear whatever you want to. By the way, it still continues because like over issues with ladies' dress, what you, what some of you ladies consider to be modest The younger folks don't even think anything at all about that. And vice versa, some of you that are younger feel what the older ladies wear is not really that great. And there's great teaching that needs to be done. Like the Lord wants the older ones to connect with the younger ones. To show you how dress and stuff can be a pretty weird issue, one of my best buddies ministered among the Alka Indians And their idea of modesty is that an Alka Indian man wears only a string. That's all he wears around his waist. And that's modesty. But if he didn't have the string, that was, it would be like you coming to church in your birthday suit. 
And that's so that when my friend went to minister among the Alcas, he had to get used to a totally different. And what I want you to know is people around the world have all different viewpoints about dress, and that influences the way that we relate together. You with me? And churches have literally fought about dress. In fact, when I went to a church, and it wasn't so bad, but when I went up to a church in Oklahoma, I did the early church service like this. And I had my shirt, my tie. I had, you would have loved it. Some of you would say, wow, that's what we want, okay? And then for the second service, I took off my coat. Because that's what a lot of Americans are doing. That's what we do in church. We just have all different services and we do what the preferences of the audience is. So I want everyone with me. Okay, here's another fight that we went through in our own church that really hasn't been too bad. If I can find it. Um, another controversy, and this is still going on. How many remember what this is? Anyone that remembers what this is, please stand up. Okay, all of you that don't remember what this is, Sit, everyone sit down now. Everyone sit down. If you don't know what this is, no, I'm only kidding you. What is this? For all those that have never seen one of these, this is a hymn book, okay? Now, that's still a divisive issue, okay? And so, and there's, and what I want you to realize, those of you that are, that this hymn book is, is the way that the Lord, what the Lord used to comfort you. And to teach you. And it's the way that you honor the Lord. So this was very, very important. And the church is still fighting over this. Relate to the dress thing. But music gets into your soul. It gets into your emotions. So you're a lot more heated. How many of you have ever had an argument over church music? You see, it gets into our soul, okay? When I first started the church here in Midlothian... We, the big fight was over whether we use this or whether we use something like this. How many know what this is? This is a contemporary praise. But I want you to know that now this contemporary praise book is now an old hymn. Which show you how things have changed, okay? So that's where it gets in. And now we're a little bit more. Now some of you are getting a little bit more feisty. Okay? Because this is the way it works. In other words, if the praise team, if they go into some of the classes that are like Mary and my own age, or that are empty nesters, then a lot of us have really deep feelings about this. They need to listen to that. But the younger generation, which is why the churches divide, they don't have all those warm feelings. They're having really powerful movements of the Spirit from the songs that they're listening to on KLTY. And because our culture is exposed to so much media, those gaps are really, really big, okay? So I, I want you to get you in the spirit. In this church family, some of you are on the suit side and some of you are on the casual clothes side. In this church family, some of you are on the traditional hymn side and some of you are on the contemporary praise side. And then there's even some people that feel like, all oh, that KLTY, that's mom and dad's music. I've now moved to another style of music, okay? Now we get really hot. Where I was raised, this is from hell. All of you that were raised like that, raise your hand. I'll give you an idea, okay? I was raised that this is burning from hell. 
This is the devil's drink. How many of you were not raised like that? Raise your hand. This was just a casual thing. Okay, we got a big divide over that. So in my upbringing, when we had communion, how many of you had communion with this? Okay, how many of you had communion with this? Okay. Now, this is where it gets hot. In fact, and, 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 and Paul, what I want to understand is, in the American culture, this is a hot one. If, if, I, if, if I was speaking to a group of Frenchmen today in the evangelical church, this wouldn't even be a fight. In the French church, which wins? You understand? Okay. And I want all the mom and dad, I want you to listen to me because your child's future intimacy with Christ could depend upon what I'm teaching you. Okay. You see, your kids are going to grow up and they're going to find out that there's believers that drink this and they're not from hell. Those of you that drink this are going to find out, like in my own family, in Mary and my family, this right here caused us to lose one of my brother-in-laws. So for my wife Mary, this right here is really emotional. Okay, so the fights are real. You understand what I'm talking about? In fact, you might not know it, but this was created by a good Pennsylvania, probably one of Dave Lowry's relatives, so that they wouldn't have to drink this in communion. He made Welch's grape juice so that all of you could have grape juice instead of this and not be a stumbling block to your brother. Now we're into it, okay? Now we got a good fight, okay? Now I want you to open your Bible to Romans chapter 14, and while you're turning there, I'll get you into the field. In the first century... What I want you to understand is that fights in the church go back to the first century. You're never going to get into a body of believers. You're never going to have an individual personal family that doesn't fight. One of the things you need to learn to do is to fight fair and to have it not to destroy your individual family and not to destroy your church family and then the broader body of Christ. As we turn the pages to Romans 14, Paul has just taught us that when Jesus died for us and then rose again, and we invited Jesus into our heart, Jesus, when he came to live inside of you, gives you the power to love God with all your heart. Because I speak to you this morning, I want you to fall in love with the triune God. I want you to be adoring of Jesus. I want every one of you to know that what this morning is about is loving Jesus. And more specifically, to allow Jesus to love us. And then that invisible relationship with Jesus expresses itself with the way that I reach out to the grape juice drinkers and the attitudes that I have towards them. And those that are the wine drinkers, it's the same thing. How do I treat them all as brothers and sisters? And what Paul is trying to get across is that now that Jesus has come, that you've been taken to a whole new level about what constitutes the family of God. And if you think that these controversies are something, can you imagine you were raised your whole life as a Jewish person? Your entire life you were raised as a Jewish person. Just 165 years before Paul's writing about then, the, your people had people that wouldn't eat pork. 
And because they wouldn't eat pork, because it denied the laws of Leviticus and denied the laws of Deuteronomy, because they wouldn't eat pork, and because they circumcised their sons, the Syrians, Antiochus Epiphanes, killed them. And there was a war that broke out over that. And the, your Jewish people won. So, and your people are scattered out all over the Roman Empire. So from the time you've been a little kid, you've been taught circumcision is the sign of the covenant. Not eating ham sandwiches. They didn't eat ham sandwiches then, but not having pork. You got me? No pork. That's a sign of keeping the clean laws of the Old Testament. Keeping the Sabbath, like meeting every week, and then maintaining the other festivals of Judaism, that is the way that you express intimacy with God. When Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, the group of people that believed that you needed to keep all those laws did not believe that the kosher laws or circumcision, or keeping the Sabbath, they did not believe that that's the way you got to heaven. I want you to be really clear. Did you hear what I just said? The Jewish Christians in the church of Rome understood just like you understand that you are saved by faith in Christ alone. And they would all say amen to that. They believed Jesus was their Messiah. They believed that Jesus had set them free from the laws of sin and death. They agreed with Paul that the law could not save them. But now that they've come to Christ, the way that they express their love for God, the way that they express their continued discipline and godliness was by keeping the kosher laws. Now, I want you to feel the strength of that. It's a little bit hard for because most of you are Texans, like, you don't know what it's like to have your shortstop that's Jewish and you've got a nice bologna sandwich and you go over to his mom and dad's house and you sit down after a day of baseball and the whole family looks at you and goes, Goyim, the Gentile, and it's bad. You see, that's what's going on in the early church. So if you're in the early church, that's a big thing. Now on the other side, the Gentile, let me talk about the Roman Gentile. They believe that circumcision is a cut against the beauty of the human body. When they went to track meets, you ran naked. It's a weird culture, yes. But for a man to be circumcised was a desecration of the human body. Ham sandwiches were a delight. And the idea of keeping the Sabbath, they had their own festival. Now, can you imagine that you're trying, like they all meet together. They're starting to meet on Sunday. They meet on, some of them meet on Saturday. Can you imagine, as American believers, what chance do you think that the early church had of being together? You see, we're having a hard time. What we do as American believers is, if we want Tony Evans, soul music. Some of you feel like, man, I want some great Tony Evans preaching. I want some great soul music. There's a whole group of you others that say, no, I don't want any instruments at all. I want some nice, quiet acapella music and Max Lucado telling me quiet stories. And then there's another group of you that say, I want 20-minute messages that are relevant 
And there's another group of you that say, no, I want 60-minute messages that have Greek and Hebrew in it. And what we're doing across the country is we all divide from one another and we go with our preferences. In Romans chapter 14, the Apostle Paul is saying what he wants us to do. And what I want every one of you to know, your relationship with Jesus is not about your preferences, it's about his love. And as we go to the text today, the Apostle Paul is going to wrestle with us about how do you get diverse people to get along? And how do you get them to welcome one another? And how do you get them to be family? And Paul begins with a welcome. Notice if you turn to Romans chapter 14, turn there, and he begins like this, accept him, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Literally what the Apostle Paul says is accept, just like the Lord accepted you, and the word accept is, is he's your brother, he's your sister, you need to love him, you need to love her, just the way you would welcome a long-lost brother, just the way you would welcome a long-lost sister, you need to welcome them into your family. And it says, don't accept them for the purpose of quarreling with them and winning the argument. That's the idea. Some of you have the idea that your, that your intimacy with God is based upon winning your argument. We all love to do that. In fact, that's one of my deep sins because I'm from the East Coast. And in my culture, when I was raised, to be, to be sharp, to be cunning, to be loud, we fight really, really hard. We drink coffee together when we're done. But in my culture, I was raised disputing is a big thing. There's a reason why Sean Hannity is from New York City. Because you're raised from the time you're a little kid. Man, it's a fast culture. You fight, you argue. The Apostle Paul is saying when we gather together today, it's not about a theological argument. He says, don't welcome somebody. And in this case, it's welcoming a Jewish believer who has a lot of scruples about what they eat and what they don't eat, what they drink, what they don't drink, the holidays that they keep. Paul says, don't accept that Jewish believer and have the intent, I'm going to argue with them and beat them and win the argument. That's what he's saying. The next thing he goes on and talks about, look what he says. He says, one man's faith allows him to eat everything. In this audience today, some of you are liberal in your viewpoints towards food and towards drink. You think you can eat and drink anything, and you receive it as a thanksgiving from the Lord. And in Paul, and what Paul says in this case is you would be considered in the Roman church one of the strong ones. And I'll talk to you about what that means in a minute. He says, but another man or woman's faith, whose faith is weak, they eat only vegetables. So some of you in this room are vegetarians. And you have deep scruples about eating. You saw a cow slaughtered. And maybe you started raising cows. And the cows now become your very best friend. And so when somebody eats a McDonald's hamburger, it's not only junk food, but they just ate one of your favorite pets. So you become a vegetarian. And Paul is dealing with groups of people. In fact, the Jewish people in this context, it's not that they're vegetarian because they don't like meat, but it's because as Jewish people that were thrown out of Rome in 49, they've now come back home. And there hasn't been enough time, probably, for the Jewish culture to get itself together enough to have kosher butchers. For example, when I go to Israel, there are kosher butchers who drain the blood out exactly right. And you can have a good lamb sandwich. 
because it's kosher. But if you're in a culture where you're not sure how it's butchered and you're Jewish, some of my Orthodox Jewish friends do this to this day. If they're in a culture like Dallas, for example, where it might be a little bit hard to find a kosher, not that you can't, but when you go into, say, Outback Steakhouse, it's not kosher, as far as I know. So my Jewish Orthodox friends have a vegetarian plate. That makes sense? I want you to feel that's the conflict that's going on. Now, look what Paul says. He says, the man who eats everything, those of you that are liberal, you're not vegetarian, you feel the Lord has declared all foods clean, like he says in Mark chapter 7, the man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. The very first thing I want you to think about is the differences between preferences and the gospel truth. And this is a hard one. In chapter 14, the Apostle Paul is talking about preferences. And the difference is about preferences. And for Paul, food and drink are preferences, not the gospel truth. Now, for some of you, like where I was raised, still to this day, this is intrinsically evil. One drop of it is sinful. But I want you to know that in my exposure around the body of Christ, this, whether this is wrong or not, is not in this bottle. That's one of the things we're going to be talking about the next couple sessions together. In fact, if you spill this on a cut, by the way, mom, if you don't have any other antiseptic, and your kid cuts himself, pour some of this if you got it, and it's a pretty good antiseptic. In the ancient world, they use it for that. I also want you to know that the first miracle that Jesus did, Jesus didn't make this at the marriage of Cana of Galilee. Because my Jewish friends would throw you out of the party for making this. He made this. You say, no, I've had you know, great teachers teach me. They diluted it with water and everything else. Yeah, they did, because they didn't have, this was expensive. But this was dangerous in the first century. That's why it says leaders must not be given to much wine. If this was just grape juice, why would Paul ever say leaders must not be given to much grape juice? Who cares? Let them drink all the welches they want. It was a dangerous thing in the first century. So what I want you to know is that exegetically, I believe it's a hands-down case, but I understand that culturally... It's really divisive. In fact, I might lose my job because I teach you this morning. But I want you to learn that the evil is not in this drink. The evil's in your heart. This isn't what makes somebody an alcoholic. They have dispositions to this. Just like I was born with certain dispositions towards evil. We need to respect one another. I want all of you to know in the church family... If you're an alcoholic, I promise you I will never, never drink any of this in your presence. And it's very near in in our extended family. It's an important issue, okay? You with me? What Paul is saying is that there's these great divisions in the church, and he says in the first century, whether or not you eat certain foods or drink certain drinks is a preference. And I want you to say, well, Dave, how do I determine what's a preference and what is the gospel truth? Listen to Jesus speaking you through the Scripture. Let me give you an example. Is this a preference for the gospel truth? The purpose of the law is not to save us eternally, 
but to convict us of sin. Is that a preference or the gospel truth? Everybody tell me. Gospel truth. Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. His blood is precious because it was the just payment that the Father made in order for our sins to be cleansed and made whiter than snow. Is that the gospel truth or a preference? The fact that the tomb was empty on the third day, early Sunday morning, Jesus left the grave closed behind, wasn't just a great mythical story. Jesus didn't just become spiritually alive. He actually conquered death and received a new glorified body forever. Gospel truth or preference? Whether we have a church service on Friday night at 6 o'clock or we meet at 11 o'clock Sunday morning, gospel truth or preference? Whether or not we have ham sandwiches, you all know. You got what I'm saying? You say, Dave, how do I decide that? By listening to Jesus teach you through his word. So the very first thing I want you to think about is the difference between preference and gospel truth. In our movement, we make very little differences between preference and gospel truth. So be careful about that. The second thing I want you to see in this passage is the irony of the weak and the strong. Most of you that believe, I'll use this because I'll get your fire up. Most of you that think this is from hell, and I want to challenge you this morning, if you believe this is evil, don't you ever drink a drop of it because you'll displease my precious Father in heaven. So if your conviction is that this is wrong, don't you ever drink it. You understand what I said? And the sin won't be in this drink. It's because you, like if you're a kid here and you go down to UT or A&M and they invite you to drink and you've been taught all your life, this is from hell. If you go to a bar and drink any of this stuff and you think you're displeasing God and you're saying, wow, I'm now free, you just sinned because God loves you more than anything else and you just dishonored the lover of your soul. You displeased him, just like it would dishonor your mom and dad if you did something that you know would hurt them deeply and you felt in your heart that it would. Now, you might find out later that it wasn't a big issue, but until your conscience is totally clear, you don't drink. But I want to tell you something. In my upbringing, the ones that thought this is the way you do it, no drinking at all, this is from hell, you drink only this. They were the strong believers, the ones that held that we should sing the old music come all, all alone, that anything past Elvis Presley was from hell. They were the really holy ones. They were the really holy ones. And we also then we, and those that wore coats and ties. They were the ones that were really respectful of the Lord. In other words, they believed they were the strong believers. And what Paul, look at Romans, in Paul's viewpoint, they're not the strong in faith believers. They're the weak ones. Now, weak isn't such a bad thing for Paul because in his strength, I be, even when I'm weak, I become strong. But in this context, he's not talking about weakness where I'm dependent upon God, but he's saying I'm weak in faith. And what it means is this. Some of you in your heart, Believe that because you wear certain kinds of clothes, because you worship on certain days, because you don't eat certain kinds of food and you don't drink certain kinds of drink, you think 
that you're more intimate with God. You think that he accepts you more. And you judge those who don't follow your viewpoint. And Paul's saying that's a weakness in faith. Because the only way that any of us in this room stand or fall is because of our trust in Jesus alone. By the way, this was a massive, massive change in the first century church. For a group of people to understand that the food laws of the Old Testament were just to show them that they could never quite be clean before the Lord. It had nothing to do with health food or not health food. It was just God as a great teacher saying, you know what, you're going to be unclean. And until you recognize you're unclean and open your heart to my mercy like King David did, you're not going to ever get it. And when Jesus came, he was able to say, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, I'm the Lord of the food laws, and I declare that now that I've come, it's time for banqueting. It's time for celebration. The king has come. And all that preparation has now been fulfilled. I'm the fulfillment of the law. And men in the first century, those were fighting words. And we haven't, words 2,000 years later, we're still in the jaws of it. But I want you as a church family to think about it. So the irony of the weak and the strong is the weak think they're strong. And the strong are disdainful towards the weak. Now I want to talk about another thing about that idea. Notice the apostle Paul says here, that we need to be careful, the strong need to be careful not to look down on him who does not eat. In my own case, because through my study of Scripture, I start not having all these scruples. I start having a disdainful attitude, a rejecting attitude towards those who keep all those scruples. So, for example, I'm talking to someone that loves the hymn book. I hit them over the head with a hymn book, and say, do you want the church to die? You know, how can you be like that? And I disdain them. And so I want all you older ones to know that you're in a church family where it's wrong for you and to be disdained in any way. And I want all the younger ones to know. We need, we need to be really careful not to be disdainful. Does that make sense? In your family, like when you get together, the Lord wants you to have a deep respect. So that, and I'm using this as an example because the danger of the strong is that you disdain those who don't have the same privileges that you are. Let me tell you, give an example of that. I went to a wedding with Mary of a dear friend of mine. He's a very powerfully great man of God. He believes very strongly, thou shalt not drink any alcohol. We went to his daughter's wedding, and at the reception, they had this. She went out of her way to put that glass of wine underneath my nose. That's disdainful. You understand what I'm talking about? And the funny thing about that is, I could care less whether she has this or doesn't. But I care a whole lot about the respect and the honor that she has towards her dad. And the fact that she felt because she knew my background, that I would have strong feelings about her doing that, and she had to exploit that freedom, that's wrong. And that's what Paul means. If you're strong in this room, the Lord wants you to never just stay in a weak believer. Now, here's the danger of those of you that, are, that have the scruples. You condemn those who don't have your scruples. You hold that they're not as close to Jesus as you. 
you make a judgment that they're not going to, maybe they, that, you know, there might be purgatory to take care of them. And that's condemnation. And we need to not do that. So number one, we need to be really careful that we understand preferences versus the gospel truth, that we're growing in our, in our distinctions through the word of God. Second of all, we need to be really careful that we understand the irony of the weak and the strong. And now the third thing, the Apostle Paul talks to us about the importance of personal convictions, but being careful, the importance of personal convictions, but not judgmental spirits. And I want to close with this because it's very important, and it relates to the final point that only God is our judge. Look what Paul goes on. He says, who are you to judge another person's servant? To his own master, he stands or falls. I want all of you to know, as you're sitting here before me, this is the wondrous thing about your faith. I want every one of you to realize God in heaven and his son are the one you're responsible to. Do you understand that? Every child, every teenager, every adult, Dorothy Barkley this morning and Francis Vineyard are in the arms of Jesus. And the only thing that counts is that they trusted the Savior with nail prints in his hands and that they loved him and they allowed his spirit to work in their life. Amen? Now, I want you to say, like, this isn't just pretend. I was in the trauma unit. This happens, really. I said, it's okay. The family wants you to remove all the stuff. And then we sit around in a circle and wait on the edge of eternity. Now, I want you to know it doesn't make any difference whether you drank wine or you didn't drink wine, whether or not you worshiped on Sunday or Saturday, whether you're Jewish, Roman Catholic, Hindu, Islamic, What Paul is saying, I want you to understand the greatness of my Savior. Every person that you ever meet on earth is one day, red and yellow, black and white, one day, they're face to face with Jesus. And what I want you to understand is Jesus is the great lover of your soul. In fact, it says he will make you stand. I want every one of you to know, I don't want you to be afraid of meeting Jesus. Notice Paul says, don't judge one another because the ultimate judge is Jesus and his father. And that judge wants to make every one of you stand. Did you hear that? He wants you to be accepted. He welcomed you by grace. He wants you to keep growing in grace. But don't think of him being distant. Don't think of him being out there condemning you. He's saying, I'm inside of you. And I'm going to help you grow, and I'm going to help you to understand what's really important and what really is the truth and what is just personal preference. What I'm really concerned about is you little kids, I want you to know Jesus. I don't want you to meet a Bible church culture. I don't want you to have a Baptist worldview. I don't want you to have a Presbyterian theology. I want you to know Jesus. I want all of you to think hard about it. There's a big difference. Paul tells in the book of Romans, it's not just our philosophy. It is the person of Jesus. The more that I get to know him, I'm so proud of my Savior. What other Savior can I represent in the trauma care unit at Parkland? Be talking to doctors and nurses and say, you can take the life support off because my sister in Christ received Christ, she knows Christ, and she'll be safely home. What other Savior could I have in my heart that can deliver on that promise? Amen? And that's what I want every child to know and every adult to know. That's what our faith is about. This universal, glorious, death-defying, death-conquering, 
eternal life-giving Savior. And Paul is saying he's the one that decides in the end. So we're all in this together. I'm not a professor that gives the grade. I'm the student who Jesus will give me the grade. And that's why he closed it with. I want all of you to know, and this is something that's very important. Those of you that are strong, those of you that are weak, it says one man considers one day more sacred than the other, another man considers every day. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So I want all of you to know you're responsible to come to decisions about your preferences. Some of you will not drink any alcohol. Some of you will like services that are more formal. You need to be firm, or some of you like, you know, more informal. It's important for you to be convinced in your own mind. And what he says, all of us, he who regards one day as special should do it for the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, and he gives thanks to God. He who abstains does so for the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And he closed out saying that for this very reason, Christ died, and then he returned to life. He conquered death like I was just teaching you. So that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Dorothy... It's still belonging to Jesus. Death didn't take away Jesus. That's what he's saying. Jesus is still her Lord, and because he's her Lord, she's more alive than she ever was. That's the truth. That's what we believe. Jesus is your Lord. You're living physically now, and Jesus is your Lord. That's what he's saying. He's saying none of us should look down or judge one another because God's going to help us to stand, and one day we're all going to stand before his judgment. As surely as the Lord lives, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. I don't want you to be scared of that accounting, but I want you to be respectful of it. The challenge we have today is every one of us need to be thinking about. I'm going to give an account to God one day. He's the one that I'm living intimately with. There's incredible freedom in that. No one can judge me about food or drink. No one can judge me about what I believe or don't believe in my preferences. But Jesus does. And what he creates is someone that knows how to do one thing in one situation and another in another situation because of love. They know how to honor their preferences. Like Paul, for example, when he was with Jewish people in Jerusalem, he was Jewish. When he went to Thessaloniki, which was a Greek city, he was Gentile. And he wasn't compromising. He was believing, I serve my Savior. And he set me free. And that's what I covet for every one of you as you leave here, that you'll understand it's not about judgmentalism. It's also not about scorning. It's about loving my neighbors. I love myself. It's about loving the Lord with all my heart. Lord, these issues are very emotional to us, just like they were emotional to the Roman church. I'd ask you, Lord, that you keep molding us and blending us together as a family. Lord, often I live just for days, and I live just for this life, and I forget about my precious Savior in the moments of my life, and I want you to convict me about that. Not because I fear your condemnation, but because I want to be in love with your grace. Lord Jesus, it is your beauty. It is your power over death. It is your power over disease. And Lord, I just want to pray that you would help as Midlothian Bible Church matures. I pray that you would protect us. Help us never to be about religious scruples or religious traditions. I pray that we'll honor and grow in ways that we can express our love for you. 
But Lord, I pray that your sweet Holy Spirit living inside of each heart here will convict those that are strong, that are disdainful towards those that are weak, to really be careful about the exercise of their freedom. I pray that those that have critical, judgmental spirits towards other believers who don't follow their food laws or don't follow their dress laws, I pray, Lord, that you would help them to really pray for their brothers and sisters and and really be asking you to work in their heart. And, Father, I just would ask you that the sweet unity that Paul desired for the Roman church to have among Jews and Gentiles, I pray that we'll have it because you used the teaching of your word this morning to produce that kind of resurrection life inside of us. In Jesus' name.